You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, we're at your house this week. Slightly different scenario, plus a slightly different format for the show. Uh, my daughter is at home with an eye infection. And so to not have the co-main event podcast besmirched by uh, baby screams in the background, uh, we're up here. We're at your house on the hill. Well, we should clarify that does not necessarily guarantee that we won't hear some baby screams because my baby's upstairs asleep right now. And God only knows what's going to happen when she wakes up and hears us yelling down here. Well, it's a, at least we have a better chance, I guess, of uh, being further removed from the baby screams. Right. Just so everybody knows, though, you know, it's a different setup, different acoustics. Anything can happen. Yeah, it's uh, we're also uh, we're doing an all questions considered all listener mail episode of the show this week because uh, uh, we're kind of in between major uh, MMA events. Not that nothing happened last week with uh, Bellator World Series of Fighting and uh, the weirdo grappling tournament thing that everyone was interested in. I can tell you're uh, super interested. Can't but, wait to get to that one. But uh, with with no UFC event to speak of, we put out the call for listener mail, uh, and you guys, as always, came through with a ton of listener mail questions. So we're going to be doing an entire episode of listener mail as we do from time to time, uh, which is only, uh, I guess, only brings up our different circumstances here because. It's much more difficult to read stuff off my computer at your house because of the lower table situation than it is at at my house. Wow. My house basically built for podcasting. (laughs) We're starting with this shit, lower table? Are you kidding me? I mean, I guess if you want to go ahead and make excuses because you think you're going to have a poor performance on this episode, that's what it sounds like is happening. I'm not saying I'm going to have a... Not to sound cocky. Not to sound cocky, but I feel like I'm already performing better on this podcast than you wow we're shades of miles jury over there <laughs> not to sound cocky i'm not saying i'm gonna have a poor episode i'm saying i'm gonna triumph over adversity oh, that's what okay. i'm saying let's, yeah. let's well, get I look it straight i look forward to that uh anything else we need to say any more announcements we need to make before we dive into this thing just see how many of these questions we can answer in the next hour and 10 minutes what episode number are we on this is 97 i believe 97 closing in on 100 where we have top secret super awesome stuff planned tons of plans yeah geez just just gonna blow your mind yeah. All right. Well, let's do it. Let's get started. What's well, you, you start? What's what's your first question? What do you got over there? Okay. Uh, my first question comes from Darren Burke, uh, who I'm gonna guess is British or maybe Canadian because he spells favorite weird and then insists that it is the only correct spelling. All-time favorite fighter from any era and why? Plus the fighter you think will be the new pay-per-view king in the UFC in the next few years, barring a GSP return. Wow, I like that for a first question. Kick the door wide open. Yeah. Let everyone know what's possible. Take no prisoners. Well, uh, favorite fighter of all time uh, in any way class? Yes. For me, that's obvious. Randy Couture. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that. That's your guy. Pretty pretty big Randy Couture mark back in the day. And uh, what was the second half? Fighter who's going to be the pay-per-view king? Right. Barring a GSP return. Uh, boy, that's a tough one, uh, especially since uh, so many of the current pay-per-view draws are injured at the moment. I mean, I guess your obvious answer would be like a John Jones type 
type individual you know, or maybe a Cain Velasquez if he could stay healthy? It's, it would seem to me that John Jones should be the guy. Like he should be the guy that everybody looks to next. And it just doesn't seem like it's happening. And it's one of these things now where I wonder, like, is it not happening because people don't like him? Or do people not like him because that's the, like, that's become the narrative that people don't like John Jones? And I mean, he seems like to me just like pure talent wise and like the ability to do awesome stuff. Uh, and be like a kind of transcendent star. It seems like he would be that guy. And yet it doesn't, like, I, I, from everything we hear, it sounds like everybody's not on board with that yet. Maybe it's a matchup problem. We haven't got the, the right fights for him yet. I'm going to come, I'm going to go outside the box here. Let me lay this on you. Okay. Uh, obvious impediments being his, his injury status and the fact that he's the champion in what is regarded as the most competitive division in mixed martial arts. But, I gotta be honest with you. I could, I could see pretty Tony making some noise as a pay-per-view draw in the future if he's able to remain champion just because, uh, well, he looks good. We've talked about that, uh, at, at <laughs> you, you length. You have talked about that. We've both quite talked a bit. about it at length. Uh, you should hear the stuff Ben Folk says when we're not on the air. Just nasty. That's private. Uh, but you know, uh, exciting young guy. Love the way he fights his fighting style. Obviously flipping around, doing all kinds of wild kicks. What do you think about that? Yeah, people love wild kicks and, and they love a, a pretty, pretty man. Uh, and you know, if, uh, if things aren't going so well, like with, with the pay-per-views or, you know, you need to, to get a little extra promo, he's got a guy for that, I'm sure. He can, he, you know, he, he knows a guy who can, who can set him up with, uh, the right look for all that stuff. He'll, he'll figure it out. Uh, you didn't answer the first part of the question. Oh, favorite all-time fighter? Well, you know, I don't feel like I can go based on just accomplishments, uh, cause it just. No one, no one's putting, uh, uh, limitations on you here. Just, just say what you want to say, man. It's your, it's, it's our show. Just say it. I'm going to say Don Fry. Okay. I like that. Which Don Fry though? Early UFC 215 pound Don Fry or went to Japan to be in a professional tag team, professional wrestling tag team with Brian Johnston, suddenly 240 pound heavyweight Don Fry? All those Don Fries plus IFL coach Don Fry, uh, who, once, uh, and this is going to get a little not safe for work because we're talking about Don Fry. You got that explicit rating. Okay. Dude. It's okay. Once at a post-fight press conference when asked about his team's performance in the IFL, explained that we look like a faggot eating a corn dog out there. What? <laughs> and I, oh, my God. I had no idea what the hell to make of that. And then later at the hotel bar, uh, I got to ask Don Fry, who were several tequilas in at that point, uh, what the hell that meant. And then he, he mimed oral sex and said, you know, he just keeps going at it and it's not paying off. Wow. Yeah. Views of Don Fry expressed on the co-main event podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of the co-main event podcast. No, they do not. All right. Second question this week comes to us from John Mariani. He writes, Lorenzo Fertitta recently stated that the UFC would be unwilling to work with a third party organization such as VADA for drug testing. He did state, however, that the UFC would work with state athletic commissions to do more testing. How would that work, considering... No, I'm, I'm going to have to change the way I'm sitting here. This is just not working. I can't read this. That's your problem? Yeah, I can't, I'm, I can't read the listener mail questions off the computer. It's like a foot and a half away from you. I, I got this... Uh, Jesus. All right, here we go. Uh, how would that work, considering not all fighters have licenses in the same jurisdiction, so even one athletic commission did enhance testing, it couldn't necessarily test all of the UFC's fighters' discuss. 
yeah, talk it, for a minute. I got to do some refiguring over here. That I, I saw that too, and it seems like there are a lot of issues with with that plan. That hey, we'll just give the state athletic commissions more money, and they'll do the stuff. Especially since the UFC is all over the damn globe these days. Uh, that's just not necessarily going to be a, a viable strategy everywhere. It seems to me that you do need to have some kind of just like independent third party agency that the UFC and other fight promoters fund, but do not have any control over, um, that can handle this stuff. I mean, his concern would seem like was, well, hey, if Vada does the testing and they say this guy popped positive, what does that mean to the Nevada State Athletic Commission? You know, they, they would have to figure that stuff out. But I think that would be an easier thing to figure out than, you know, how you're going to work it in all these different jurisdictions with different rules. And like we said, you know, uh, one of the things that the Nevada State Athletic Commission has said they have problems with when it comes to real long-term, like random testing was, Hey, how do you, who's going to fight in on the July 5th card, or whatever in Las Vegas? Can you tell me right now? You know, not necessarily. Sometimes that stuff comes together really late, and so they don't always uh, find out what they would need to know in order to do that testing really far out from, you know, when the guys would be most likely to be on the performance-enhancing drugs. So there's a lot of issues there. Also, it seemed like Lorenzo Fertitta, at least in what I read in Brett Akimoto's thing on ESPN, uh, touted the State Athletic Commission system by saying, like, hey, you know, and they just tested Vitor Belfort, so they can do stuff. Didn't mention how that test turned out, which is the kind of the... The thing that everybody is speculating on right now. Yeah, and I, I read those Lorenzo Fertitta quotes, and and they were really kind of in the same vein that the UFC uh, executives always fall back on when anyone asks them about, you know, enhanced drug testing or whether or not the UFC should be in charge of drug testing. And that is the sort of claim that they're uh, regulated by the government, all caps, exclamation point, government, government, uh, and never really... Uh, really head on addresses the idea that the UFC is a, as a private company and that, you know, these guys are, are signed contracts as, uh, independent contractors for the UFC. And, and I would think as, as a private company that the UFC could enforce any sort of employment, uh, regulations or drug testing that it wanted to. They always just kind of, uh, fall back on this idea that, Almost, they almost act like they'd be stepping on the athletic commission's toes yeah. if they. And they don't uh, want to offend an athletic commission, or you know, suggest that the governor come in here and overhaul the damn thing. Right. They they, uh, they suggest they'd be stepping on like the the regulators' toes if they if they did extra drug testing. When I really don't think that's true. I think that the UFC could do any kind of drug testing regimen that it that it would want to above and beyond, and in addition to what the uh, state athletic commission does, as long as the. Uh, the athletic commission also did its own testing, which is the kind of thing that, that I think I've argued for a, a lot on this show before. Um, the, the idea that the UFC should do that kind of stuff, that it would be better for everyone, probably including them if it, if it did that. But, you know, so far the company just seems unwilling to, to take that step for whatever reason. Yeah. You know, uh, I want to go back and amend my favorite fighter now that I've had a chance to think about it. That's in the past, man. That already happened. Well, for one, I don't Most want. Most people have turned the show off by now. I don't want people to think that I necessarily condoning Don Fry's use of a, a homosexual slur. Uh, but once I got started thinking about the Pride era when you brought it up, I remembered my my real favorite fighter, Igor Vovchanchnyan, because he looks like a baby and he's terrifying. Yes, the original dead-faced Russian killer. Yeah. Knockout artist. Just looks looks like a like a five-foot-nine baby, uh, but will knock you out. That's scary. Know. It seems to me like you're just trying to cover your ass there for the earlier homophobia that you spewed, the hate crime that you committed on the air. Hey, I just repeated Don Fry's remarks, which 
I mean, whenever you can come up with something, some stuff like that, uh, for one thing, you just throw it out there in a press conference. Uh, and then the kind of thing where like, I have to ask you for clarification on it later, which only gets more offensive once you explain it. It's kind of incredible. All right. What's your next question? My next question, uh, comes from Darcy LeDrew. I woke up today to CTV, probably Canada's second largest news organization, posting a study from the University of Toronto. Apparently, MMA, quote, has a risk of brain trauma higher than other martial arts. Please see provided link below. I think we've all seen this, this story floating around by now. Uh, the study points out a third of MMA matches ended in TKO or KO, leading the study's authors to believe that it has worse effects than boxing. My question is simple. As fans of a new, somewhat more mainstream combat sport, are we forced to walk a tightrope? I do not want to deny the danger of the sport, but at the same time, I do not want mainstream people thinking this sport is a deplorable freak show. As someone who has dabbled in boxing, I cannot imagine MMA being worse. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think we both did see this study. Uh, I think everybody saw it. Uh, and it seemed to be uh, another one of those kind of flawed uh, quote-unquote scientific medical studies where the people doing it didn't actually uh, um, look at any living human beings. They just right. judged every, all of their findings on uh, 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 videotape that they watched, footage of, of MMA bouts and stuff like that. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of uh, evidence to suggest that maybe this isn't the airtight condemnation that, that it was presented uh, by the by the people who actually conducted the study, uh, and one of their I thought more uh, questionable results or, or findings was that they recommended a standing eight count in MMA, which would would be weird as shit because that that essentially just means that you become concussed and then are allowed to have a short time to recover and right. then are sent back out to receive more. Yeah, punishment you're just gonna get hit in the head more to the way. brain pan. Uh, I mean, all of this kind of stuff still kind of swirling around. The sport is so young. I don't know that we, that the, the jury is back yet on, on how bad it is for your brain, but we can say with relative certainty, certainty that this isn't good for your brain. This no. stuff's not good for you. Well, so it's all, all these studies. It's just kind of a matter of figuring out how bad is it. Right. That's one of the things that occurred to me when, uh, like, it seems like we've gotten caught up in this argument where it's like, what is worse for your brain? Boxing, MMA, pro football, you know, ice hockey. I mean, if you're getting hit in the head, then they're all kind of bad. Like, they're, none of those are doing your brain any favors. And it seems like trying to decide which one is, you know, the absolute worst or ranking, like, the potential for, for brain injuries. I mean, you can get messed up in all those sports. Like, that, that doesn't necessarily feel like that should be the focus of, of what we're doing here. It also seems like, it's one, it only tells you some, like a little bit of what you need to know by looking at the actual competitions themselves. Because as everybody has said, uh, a lot of the damage that MMA fighters do to themselves comes in training. Uh, and that's not necessarily the same. You know, boxers, uh, a lot of times just will spar fewer rounds and the sparring is very different. Uh, and it's like with football players, it seems like a lot of the damage that they do comes from taking a hit and then there's a game next week and you're expected to play. Whereas with MMA fighters, you get knocked out and probably going to be three months to your next fight at least. Uh, so there's a lot of differences in there that make those sports have a different impact on your brain. But I mean, none of them are good. I right. feel like we know that. 
Next question comes to us from Mark Featherstone. He writes, I've heard the strangely feasible tea leaves theory, but are there any other suggestions on how Dave Meltzer gets his pay-per-view numbers? Every time I hear him on the MMA Fortnite, I find it strange that Ariel just takes his word as gospel, although Wikipedia also does the same, so maybe we can't blame him. Uh, yeah, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Dave Meltzer, longtime professional wrestling reporter, uh, longtime MMA reporter, all around uh, longtime TV guy uh, right. in all ways. Uh, he's the guy who mainly comes up with estimated pay-per-view buy rates. And uh, Mark Featherstone is right. The, the, the industry at this point does kind of take those as gospel and, and use them like they're the, the confirmed actual buy rate. Uh, which is a little bit troublesome, but at the same time, like, uh, people who are in the know say that Dave Meltzer gets pretty close. I think that the, the real problem is not necessarily Dave Meltzer or his number, but then that, that that number gets proliferated so many times over by so many people who don't necessarily treat it like they should and, and don't, you know, denote that it's just an estimated buy rate instead of like the actual performance of a pay-per-view. Yeah. And that it is also one of those things where, uh, like where the UFC says, okay, here's what these guys, you know, the athletic commission will release the official payout and the UFC will tell you, oh, those guys are making way more money than that, but won't say what. And so then it just keeps you in this speculative conversation, uh, where, you know, if you don't actually know for sure that you can, you know, the conversation can only be so serious or have like so many actual consequences. So, yeah, I mean, I, don't, I guess, like, what's our alternative to the current Dave Meltzer system? Or what are we going to do if something happens to Dave Meltzer? God, yeah, we should be protecting that guy. Yeah. We should, we, the MMA media should throw a, some money in a pot and maybe use it as a security, uh, and then get him a driver. Yeah, that's you know, right. Whatever we can do to keep the guy off the streets. Yeah. You know? God forbid something happens to Dave Meltzer, then, uh, you know, it'll just be a, a the pay per view numbers will just be a black hole. No one will have any clue. What's your next question? All right. Uh, my next question. I'm going to skip that one. Oh, uh, okay. Some cool. editing going on yeah. over there. Um, okay. Uh, this one comes from Stuart Purvey. After reading the Financial Times article starring Dana White, I have two questions. One, with fighter pay a constant topic of conversation in the MMA sphere, was it wise for Dana White to gleefully assert that the UFC is now worth $3.5 billion? Two, aside from the uppity journalist complaints about improper manners, a man is free to eat as much meat as he wants whenever he wants, Fact. parentheticals, uh, the article does raise the question, has the UFC outgrown Dana White? Would the UFC be more capable of becoming a mainstream interest if someone who is more reasonable, filtered, and more respectable by the general population, i.e. a Brian Stan, was the face of the UFC? Uh, we see that idea floated a lot, actually a lot more, more often, which I think is, is telling and, and maybe not the, the way you want to be trending if you're, if you're the UFC yeah. or the UFC president. Um, and clearly someone who appeared more, uh, reasonable and, and like less of a firebrand would fit my personal tastes better. I think someone who was a little bit more, uh, David Stern style or Lorenzo uh, Fertitta perhaps or uh uh you know uh, someone who who acted more like the head of a legitimate pro sports organization and a little bit less like uh Vince McMahon but at the same time th th this question I always come back to the idea like who are you gonna get and I guess the 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 emailer here brings up Brian Stan which something that I had not considered before but maybe actually kind of a good idea but I feel like you know with all of this 
kind of calling for Dana White's head in a way that's been going on recently. We get ourselves into a situation where it might be a be careful what you wish for situation, because for all of the complaints about Dana White, the guy has been really successful uh, in building the business and has obviously shepherded MMA through this period where it's it's experienced unprecedented growth and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, like. Uh, I always look at, Bjor- at uh, Bjorn Rebney and I think like, well, let's say like Bjorn Rebney wasn't the head of Bellator, but was like the next guy you would get if Dana White stepped down. Like, are you comfortable with that? Is that an improvement? Is that an upgrade? So like, you know, it's it, it's kind of like quarterbacks in the NFL in a way. Everybody who's got a bad or iffy quarterback in the NFL wants to get rid of their quarterback and get somebody new. But the question is always like, well, who are you going to get? And is it going to be better? Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that occurs to me, like the suggestion of like Brian Stan, uh, and obviously Brian Stan is a guy who it seems like, and you could install him as the CEO of a company that does a business that he knows nothing about, and he's still going to inspire confidence in people. He just has that kind of leadership ability. But I think if Brian Stan were suddenly the president of the UFC and the guy there at press conferences and the guy answering questions, wouldn't we all just assume that he was a puppet? Uh, that like he was, you know, being told what he could say and what he couldn't say, uh, which is one of the things that you like you don't have to worry about with Dana White. That the as we've talked about before, the kind of the virtues of his faults there uh, is that he'll just fly off and say stuff. Uh, and sometimes that's a problem, but at least, you know, it's like we look at his Twitter. At least, you know, he's really operating that Twitter most of the time. Uh, and it, like with Scott Coker, I mean, that used to be the joke among MMA media with Scott Coker was how, you know, you'd go to like a press conference before or after a strike force fight, you'd ask Scott Coker these questions and he would just never give you a definitive answer. Like about anything. Like he just, like he felt like he couldn't. And, you know, oh, hey, what about this? You think you guys will make this fight? I don't know. You know, we're going to look at some things. We're going to talk to Showtime. We'll have an answer for you in a week, 10 days. Something, you know, even when, uh, there was the, uh, you know, there were controversial stuff happening, like the brawl in Nashville, or uh, I remember one of the fights, I can't remember, it was uh, KJ Noons and George Grizel, where it was like maybe some iffy shots after the bell there. Every time you'd ask Scott Coker about that stuff, oh, didn't see it, didn't see that one. I'll have to go back and look at the tape, and I'll get back to you guys. You know, like this complete opposite approach of Dana White, who has an opinion on absolutely everything. And no, I don't necessarily know that that was better. Especially, I mean, this is fighting. You need kind of a carnival barker out there in some way. Uh, but as for the first question about the Financial Times lunch, should he be bragging that the UFC is worth $3.5 billion because we have numbers, you know what I mean, uh, at a time when everybody's complaining about fighter pay? I mean, that seems like something that keeps coming up, where the UFC itself like the company seems to be doing really well ufc fighters on the whole don't seem to be uh experiencing the same kind of financial growth at least on the same kind of trajectory uh and when people bring it up about dana white talking about leaving casinos with trash bags full of cash he acts as if like that should like he should be able to talk about it yet nobody else should be able to talk about it it's weird it is weird. And, and, you know, eventually you get into a situation where you can't really have it both ways, no. right? You can't constantly, uh, brag about, about your numbers and how well all your shows are doing and how much the, the company is worth and, and, and still, uh, not want to talk about how much you're paying your employees and, you know, have the, leave the perception out there that pay has remained stagnant. Uh, because that's sort of how we, how we feel 
uh, from the outside looking in because all we get to see, obviously, are the the official reported payouts when the UFC uh, has a show in a place where the athletic commission is is required to release that information. We're always told that those aren't the real numbers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, at, at some point, I've always said if the UFC is paying those guys a ton more, then then we find out in public that it would probably be in the company's best interest to release that information or kind of like uh, open its books in a lot of ways, because uh, that would certainly shut everybody up about the fighter pay discussion. If if you know, if everything is above board now, you know, if everything's not above board, then, yeah, you probably want to keep that secret. Yeah. If you're paying the fighters 15 percent or well, whatever. And it seems like one of the problems that the UFC is kind of moving towards in this kind of hints at that is that. You're, you're getting into a situation where people, even the people who really, really like the product, aren't crazy about the company. You know, and it's like, like a, the way a lot of pro wrestling fans seem to feel about the WWE, you know, where people who really like watching the shows, uh, still kind of feel like, I don't know if I, you know, how I feel about like this, this corporation. Like, it's like supporting the UFC at that point starts to feel like, you know, just like supporting General Motors or something. Uh, and I don't think you want that. Like, I think like you, you want a little bit more of that where people feel like, Hey, it's this MMA thing that we're all in together and all want to see, you know, do well and stick around. All right. Next question comes to us from Patrick Nyland. He writes, Robbie Lawler is now booked to face Jake Ellenberger at UFC 173 on May 24th. Should Lawler really be fighting again so soon? It's It'll only be two months and ten days after his brutal war with Johnny Hendricks. Now he's thrown in there against another heavy hitter just over two months later. That does not sit well with me. Discuss, please. Uh, you know, before we get into that, maybe we should just say a couple words about UFC 173 in general because... It's been a long, strange journey to get to this fight card. This was supposed to be the one uh, where Chris Weidman was going to fight Vitor Belfort, and then obviously uh, we all know what happened there. Yeah. Uh, they put Lyoto Machida in for Belfort, uh, but then uh, that the Weidman suffered a knee injury, and so they they had to kind of call the whole thing off, move it back to uh, to July, and uh, so now we have this kind of makeshift fight card where. Uh, your main event is Henan Barrow against TJ Dillashaw, and you've also got this this uh, what shapes up as a pretty awesome fight between Robbie Lawler and Jake Ellenberger. Uh, maybe in spite of the of these health concerns, I don't know if you want to address that. Well, as you say, long strange trip to get to this fight card, and we're not there yet. That's so, true. Anything could still happen. Yeah, hard subject to change. Yeah, uh, I don't. I mean, this is one where I I feel like we're we're assuming too much by being like, okay. Two months and ten days or whatever isn't enough for him to rest up after that fight, which, you know, we're saying we think it had to be really, really brutal on his brain or his body or something. I don't know what if it were three months, would that sit better with us? Because that's usually more of a standard like time off. Uh, and how do we know that he was really that badly messed up from the fight anyway? You know, I don't. Know. I mean, it's tough for me to say in that kind of situation where. Uh, you know, it's not like the guy went out there and got knocked out and so then would have to, you know, like be taking like a certain necessary time off before he can do anything. It's, it was a tough fight, but I don't, it doesn't necessarily bother me to have him booked again that soon. I mean, it kind of just makes me realize like, yep, Robbie Lawler is still doing that Robbie Lawler thing where he is going out there and fighting as often as he can to get that paper, which you got to respect. Yeah. And there probably are some, some health concerns in the background there, but then again, there's concerns for guys' brains every time they go out there and fight. And it's not like they're having this uh, 
fight card in the boonies. This one's in Las Vegas. So Robbie Lawler is going to have to come in and get cleared uh, by the athletic commission. And uh, I mean, I guess at this point, we're at a we're at a point in the sport where you just got to kind of take their word for it medically. Right. Because they're the final word on whether or not a guy is is going to be allowed to fight. And if you're having the fight in, in Nevada, the Nevada Athletic Commission, eh, kind of the, the best we have right now. Yeah. Well, for better or worse. Uh, next question here comes to us uh, from Doug Ty, who says, I've been watching the gloriously preposterous pre-Zufa UFC events on Fight Pass, and roughly 75% of defensive grappling in this era consists of grabbing the fence and holding on for dear life. So I'm wondering, how would the sport have evolved differently if fingering the fence, so to speak, had never been illegalized? Huh. Uh, I don't ring the fence, by the way. Great right. term. So, so is illegalized. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that it would be that different. It would probably just be a lot, uh, uglier. You know, you brought up Don Fry earlier. I was a big Don Fry fan back in the day myself. Uh, more of a fan of the 215 pound Don Fry that, that fought in the early UFCs. Got the but pride Don Gilbert. Nothing wrong with the pride Gilbert. The pride Don Fry. I'm just saying, if we're, if it's a story of two fries. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take Don Fry version 1.0 as okay. my favorite Fry. Okay. <laughs> uh, he fights Mark Coleman at whatever early UFC uh, they had. And it was one of the very first fights where I ever thought like, oh, man, they actually really do need to have weight classes in this thing. Because Coleman was rolling around like 240, 245, just jacked. Don Fry is, is essentially a, a light heavyweight, maybe a middleweight by today's standards. Uh, and he just gets taken down against the fence and brutalized. Just headbutted and over and over again. It seems to me, I'm you know, it's, I'm sure it didn't actually take this long, but like, it seemed to me like Don Fry tried and tried for about 45 minutes to get up. And finally, I think what he does is he reaches up and grabs the fence, maybe with both hands and just like basically chin ups himself to his feet and then immediately gets taken back down. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know that you would have a tremendously, a lot of really different outcomes. I just think that you would have a lot more, uh, strange and to, to, to borrow the, the emailer's word, preposterous situations. Uh, man, maybe, I don't know, man, is, is the grabbing the fence rule a rule like m maybe more or as much about how it looks as about the actual, uh, like strategical advantage you can get by grabbing the fence. Yeah. Cause it looks like some cheap shit, it which does. I think is probably, if we're all going to be honest about it, the real impetus behind making that illegal. I agree. And I've heard Joe Silva say before that he thinks, Hey, if, if the big, big problem with them grabbing the fence, uh, just make that legal. Like it's fine. You know, it shouldn't, ha if it's there for them to grab, let them grab it. Uh, but I do think it's more for cosmetic reasons that we don't do it. But I do think it would change some things because I think that you see, especially a lot of people have developed their takedown game in for MMA entirely off of the fence. Like that's just how they, they assume that like, all right, I'm going to back the guy up to he's close enough to the fence uh, and either shoot into the clinch basically or just like get him up against the fence. And like that a lot of people just spend their entire focus for takedowns is like, well, I assume that like my takedown game starts when I get him up against the fence and it changes if the guy can grab onto it a little bit. And especially we see situations where, you know, a guy is almost going to go down on a takedown attempt and he, he can kind of reach out there and just stop that initial, you know, fall by grabbing the fence a little bit, then he stops it and then he can, you know, get into position to, to fight off from there. So I do think it would change some things. Uh, 
might make it easier on the referees who can never decide what the hell to do about it when a guy grabs the fence. But again, I, I don't think you're going to see uh, MMA taking away rules. I think that well, Big John McCarthy is right, that we'll probably only see rules added rather than subtracted. The next question comes from Mike M. He writes, so Frankie Edgar takes 365 days off and comes back to fight BJ Penn, the same BJ Penn that Edgar has already beaten twice. BJ has lost his last three fights and has not fought since December of 2012. This fight makes absolutely no sense and gets Edgar no closer to another shot at Aldo. Uh, do you see Edgar getting another title shot? And if so, in what division? Huh, that's not totally where I thought that question was going to go right there at the end. Uh, but... <laughs> I'm going to say yes. I do see Frankie Edgar getting another title shot uh, in almost any division that he decides to fight in. And that's because, uh, especially at these lighter weight classes, I think you're always going to have Frankie Edgar as sort of a Uriah Faber type individual. And that is a guy who has something of a known profile among MMA fans, a guy with a with a slightly higher uh, uh you know, Q factor, I guess. Isn't that what you call it when somebody's recognizable? I have, have no factor. idea. I've never heard uh, of that. And he's going to be around, you know, as long as he is around, I guess, hanging hanging around these lighter weight classes. I think he's always going to kind of be, to borrow Dana White's expression, in the mix. Especially if Jose Aldo goes to 155 at some point, that kind of opens the door for a lot of guys at, at 145. And you would think, you know, Frankie Edgar, still at featherweight, would probably be right back in line at that point. Yeah, I was going to say that if he does fight again for a title, it would probably be in a situation where there's a lack of better options. Because I do think he still has a fan following and people know him and we, you know, he wouldn't have to win that many fights in order for the UFC to be able to make a case for that and have it not seem utterly ridiculous. But I do think Featherweight is shaping up like where there are are starting to be more options now. I mean, I think the featherweight division is finally getting to be what we all kind of thought maybe it could be, which is like an alternate lightweight division where you had a bunch of those guys who dropped down. It's, it's kind of the same stacked field that we see at lightweight. You got guys like Cub Swanson, Chad Mendez, and those guys hanging around, you know, who's to say where it goes there. But as far as the Frank Edgar, BJ Penn, uh, situation, that one just seems like, well, we're not sure what to do. We got both these guys and uh, kind of like, let's see who still has something. I mean, you guys figure it out on your own, you know, who, who we're going to work with in the future. And so we're doing it just for the hell of it. I mean, I can't say I'm totally against it because I can't, doesn't seem like there was anything like more pressing for either one of those guys to do. I guess if I'm against any aspect of it, it's BJ Penn continuing to fight. Yeah, it doesn't seem like the problem on those previous Frank Yeager fights was that BJ Penn needed to cut even more weight. <laughs> right. All right, what's your next question? Um, okay, my next question, uh, this is one I'm sure that you're going to enjoy, Chad. It comes from David Dore, and it says, Sup with every MMA outlet covering Meta Morris like it's not just some bros rolling around in pajamas. Discuss at length. Yeah, that's pretty weird to me. I, I do obviously understand the relationship of submission grappling with, with MMA and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And clearly that's one of the, uh, one of the best platforms with, from which to launch your MMA career. And, you know, there's the guys or sites do kind of do this with the, with the national wrestling tournament now too. There's a lot of coverage of that, although I would say maybe not quite as much. I think, uh, Metamorus, did I say that right? Is that what it's called? Don't play dumb here. Metamorous world peace. Uh, <laughs> it kind of benefited from being on a weekend when there was no major UFC. Uh, and so even though there was Bellator and World Series of Fighting going on, uh, you know, sites were maybe kind of scrounging around looking for stuff to write about, stuff to do content about. Uh, you had this uh, kind of high profile super fight at the top between Eddie Bravo and... Uh, 
Spoiler Gracie. There you go. Uh, and and a bunch of known MMA guys on the, on the card. So I think that it sparked some interest. But it is a completely different sport. And so it therefore doesn't totally jive with what I would think the primary goal of MMA websites would be. But before you answer, I got a follow-up question for you from Mark Blackmore, who writes, So Metamorris 3 was totally awesome, even though half the matches ended in a draw. Is this okay? Okay. Um, first, about your point, and, and I have wondered the same thing at times, where, like, where do we draw the line if you're an MMA website uh, about what you'll cover? Because sometimes you'll see some MMA websites, if it's a big enough boxing match, they'll cover that. Um, but, you know, they won't really cover the sport of boxing as a whole, only if it's one of the really big ones, which does seem like, you know, an attempt just to like, okay, there's an easy way to get web traffic. Uh, but then again, if you have MMA fighters competing in stuff like like Metamorris, does that make it worth covering? Like I would say Chris Cyborg's uh, kickboxing bout uh, over the weekend at, at Lion Fights, that does seem relevant because it's something people are going to look at for kind of an assessment of Chris Cyborg's skills, although I don't think her losing that fight uh, necessarily means anything for her MMA career because she's still, you know, she's only got like three Muay Thai fights. But uh, as far as like Metamorris, I mean, it is something that definitely... It appeals to jujitsu nerds who often also happen to be MMA nerds. So it's just that kind of like crossover. But I mean, it's also surprising to me because a lot of the dudes I do jujitsu with, they're not super into MMA. I mean, they'll like, if there's a big fight, they'll know about it. But like frequently, they'll just like ask me like, Hey, is there a UFC this weekend? Or was there a UFC this weekend? What happened? Was it worth watching or will it be worth watching? They kind of use me as the, the canary in the coal mine there in those situations. But with Metamorris, these suits were talking about this shit for weeks beforehand and we're super into it and, you know, trading videos and stuff back and forth before and after. So it is kind of a, to some extent, a different kind of crowd. I mean, as for like, does it, is it a problem for a bunch of the matches to end in draws as is going to happen with some submission only, uh, events where people are evenly matched? Didn't bother me at all. I mean, I think that uh, it's kind of a fun way to do jujitsu because, for one thing, it motivates the the competitors to try for submissions rather than just like get a lead on points and then stall out the rest of the round, which nobody wants to watch. Uh, and you can, you know, point fighting in jujitsu is definitely different than like trying to actually go for the f- finish. But it also it doesn't stop you from saying. I think this dude won at the end. You know, like the Eddie Bravo, uh, Hoyler Gracie match ended in a draw, but Eddie Bravo seemed like he won. He was the only guy who even came close to getting any submissions in that. So it's not, I, I like, I think it works for jujitsu in a way. I don't know if it, the same kind of thing would work for MMA. Like they used to do with boxing, you know, where if nobody, you know, they go like 30 rounds or whatever the hell crazy stuff they did. And if nobody knocked anybody out in 30 rounds and they just declared it a draw, which is why like guys like Jack Dempsey have like 20 draws on their record. I don't know. I mean, I think that maybe there's something to be said for that system. The next question comes from Kevin Stianchi. He writes, Bellator has a pay-per-view coming up in a few weeks. They canceled their last pay-per-view and showed it for free when nobody was buying it. Doesn't that mean we should pass on buying this one as well? We already know what Bellator will do if nobody purchases Bellator 120. They'll throw it on Spike and we won't have to pay for it. Uh, okay. That, that, <laughs> I see what you're getting at. Kevin Stianchi, but that also seems like a little bit of revisionist history about what happened to the Bellator pay-per-view. Yeah, they decided no one would pay for it after it lost Tito Ortiz Rampage uh, and preemptively, you know, kind of decided not to 
take what they thought was going to be a bad beating in that sense. I look at this pay-per-view, and or at least the, the lineup, you know, if you add a, a few more good fights to it, that seems worth buying to me. You know, I mean, haven't, haven't Eddie Alvarez and Michael Chandler earned that much yeah. just on their own? After those two, because it's, I could see after one, you'd be like, okay, I had one good fight. You know, those rematches never live up to it, but it did. You know, the rematch was awesome. So the third fight, I mean, I think that one alone ought to get you in the door there. Yeah, I agree with you. I, f- I feel kind of, uh, bullish on the Bellator pay-per-view at this point. Maybe not, uh, I'm not going to put my my expectations too high, obviously, but I want to watch uh, Eddie Alvarez and Michael Chandler do it again, brother. And and I think you're right. I think that uh, those guys have have earned the right to fight on pay per view. I hope that they're going to get a cut of the of the monies. And uh, if they are, well, shit, man, everyone should order it just for that reason alone. Get, get those guys some money. Get, pay them back a little bit for the shit they done been through. <laughs> Uh, you know, and then I guess people are going to watch the, the, the Rampage King Mo fight also, which, uh, seems like one that, that, that even though I'm, I'm not the, the biggest Quentin Rampage Jackson supporter in the world, feel like I was tired of his, his shtick about 10 years ago. Uh, I can understand wanting to watch it, see what happens, that they're going to play up the grudge match angle and, and, you know, whoever wins that fight allegedly is going to get a shot at, at new light heavyweight champion Emmanuel Newton, which, uh, makes sense if it's a rampage. If it's King Mo, I don't really know how you justify that, but, uh, we'll see what happens and maybe Bellator throws an Alexander Shlomenko or a Pat Curran on there and, uh, I think you got yourself a good night of fights. Irregardless of the fact that we should all probably be rooting for Bellator to make it and, and supporting them with their, in their pay-per-view venture. You know what I hope? I hope that nothing happens to Dave Meltzer before this thing, because otherwise we'll have no idea how many pay-per-view buys they sell. That, that is going to be something we need to know. Yeah. You know, you know it's going to be a, a topic of conversation. I, I guarantee we get some listener mail questions about that one after the event is over, regardless of how it goes. Okay. Um, next question. Let's uh, Okay. From John Crowley. At this point, who is the greatest lightweight of all time and why? Oh, that's that is a that's a tough question. It's it's uh it's hard to even pinpoint the greatest lightweight of all time, uh because of the way the the division has kind of played out and the way that the UFC uh shit canned it for a while, for lack of a better term. Um so they didn't really even have a lightweight division. Uh boy. Is the greatest lightweight of all time BJ Penn? That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I BJ think that's Penn. I think that's your best answer. I mean, the guy with the most title defenses is uh, Benson Henderson, right? And uh, and we know how those went. Yeah, not gonna he make, lost half those. Not going to make that argument. Uh, I mean, I guess I feel like because I, I kind of felt the same way when I was thinking about this one. Uh, my gut reaction first thing I go to BJ Penn. It's got to be BJ Penn, right? And then I was kind of thinking, yeah, I don't know. But if not him, then who? Like that's the that's where I come up empty on it, you know. I mean, it seems like if you can fault him for anything, it's that BJ Penn was one of those guys who, whenever he was doing well at something, decided he wanted to do something else. Like, oh, it's not good enough to just be the dominant uh, UFC lightweight champion. Got to go up to welterweight and fight George St. Pierre, and then got to accuse him of being a greaseball. Uh, and you know, he he always kind of loved maybe because he came of age in a different MMA era. Kind of loved those those sorts of challenges it's fighting against bigger dudes but i don't know i mean i, I think uh if you, if you call bj penn the greatest lightweight of all time i can't really work up a strong argument against that 
The next question comes from Omar Gomez. He writes, with Cyborg Justino losing at Lion Fights 14 on Friday night, should the fact that she lost in a Muay Thai fight affect how we perceive her when it comes to MMA? You kind of answered this a minute ago, but maybe we should speak to it more. Specifically, does it hurt the marketability of the Ronda Rousey super fight? No. Does not hurt the marketability of the Ronda Rousey super fight. I agree with you. I don't think it hurts the marketability of the Ronda Rousey super, super fight, but... If there were dudes hanging around looking for an excuse not to have the Ronda Rousey super fight. Who such dudes could you be referring to? Now they have one. Uh, and I agree with you, though. Uh, you know, th- this reminds me of the time back in 2006 when Randy Couture went out and had a submission wrestling match with a guy that some people listen to this podcast might have heard of. Jacare. <laughs> and they fought to a draw at the time. You know, Randy Couture was uh, fighting as a UFC heavyweight and Jacques Array was a guy who we didn't know a ton about. Uh, they had a they had a draw in a submission wrestling match. Three months later, Randy Couture gets a shot at the UFC heavyweight championship and he wins it. So I don't know where we're getting off saying the fact that Cyborg goes out and loses to a woman who's far more experienced and far more accomplished in uh, kickboxing than she is. I don't know how that, uh, how that like would totally decimate uh, Chris Cyborg's stock in MMA, especially since I think it's universally agreed that if those two women fought in MMA, Chris Cyborg would, would kick her ass. Yeah. Or like, you know, Ask yourself, uh, how would Ronda Rousey do in a kickboxing match uh, uh, against the same opponent? Probably not so well. I don't necessarily think it, it uh, makes me less interested in seeing that fight or diminishes Chris Cyborg's stock. If anything, I think it's a little impressive that she's willing to take such a fight for like her third pro Muay Thai fight. I like the fact that uh, she is willing to accept all those challenges. Uh, and like you said, it's like if somebody goes and does a submission grappling tournament uh, in their spare time and doesn't win first, you know, or like an MMA fighter goes and does, you know, metamorphosis or something or and bo- bobsled or Bob or, or does the, the Olympic bobsled, uh, you know, and comes up with a bronze. Hey, that's not so bad. You know, as long as you're keeping yourself busy, as long as you're staying healthy, uh, no big deal there. I agree that the only way that it could be a bad thing is if people decide to use it as an excuse not to make a fight that they already don't want to seem to make. All right. What's your next one? Okay, my next question, we had to get around to this eventually. This comes from Jay Bradley. Look, I think Husamal Palharis is a bit of a scumbag based on the Thomas Droll and Mike Pierce incidents. However, I feel that some members of the MMA media and fan base are being overly critical of his recent win via, surprise, first round heel hook due to his shoddy at best track record. I've watched the finish multiple times and it seems he holds the submission for a fraction of a second long after the ref steps in and then he lets go. That amount of time is well within reasonable reaction time, especially in the heat of the moment. I was shocked to see the criticism and semi-outrage following the fight, so now that leaves me with two questions. One, first, do the perturbed parties have a valid point to make, or are they letting Paul Harris's pass cloud their judgment? And second, how is what Paul Harris did any different than, say, the much-celebrated flying forearm smash that Hendo dropped on Bisping? They both fought until the ref stopped the fight, but Hendo and other fighters that hit an already knocked-out opponent get not even a fraction of the hate that Paul Harris gets. What gives? 
Yeah, I don't think that there was much controversy in this one, although I know that some controversy was made of it after the fact. And, uh, you know, Eve Levine has to go in there and give two quick tugs. Like, he definitely has to has to give two yanks on the thing before Pal Harris lets go of the submission that he got on Steve Carl. Uh, but it, it, there wasn't anything different than uh, in that submission and, and a submission that anyone else would grab, as right. far as I was concerned. Yeah. And clearly what we have here is just a case of, of Paul Harris's background kind of like inviting extra scrutiny uh, uh into his conduct in the cage, which I think that part of it is reasonable. I, yeah, he, just, yeah, he he brought that on himself. He can't complain too much about that. Right. Uh, but I do think at this point that like it's a situation where if he gives anyone half a chance, they're going to try to make a big deal out of it. Uh, and I didn't I didn't really see that in this one. I thought that uh, that he uh, uh, let go of the submission as soon as he was able to engage his his conscious brain from the whatever reptilian submission monster brain that he uses during the fight or whatever the uh, the his people told us that was the problem <laughs> with him the last when he got cut from the UFC. Yeah, no, this one it seemed like if it if he had not have had that that reputation going in, nobody would have thought twice about it. Uh, and I, I don't like you, you don't hear Steve Carl, his opponent in that fight, really complaining about it. Um, it just seemed like because everybody was on heightened alert for something like this from him that then they, they seized on it. But I don't see anything really egregious when you go back and you watch it. It, to me, it's kind of a bummer for him, but again, a, a deserved bummer that we're talking about that and not the fact that, dude, the, the heel hook guy, the guy everybody knows is going to try and go out there and heel hook you, goes out there and does it just pretty much immediately again. Like, I mean, that's pretty damn impressive and nobody's even talking about that because we're talking about whether or not, you know, he was being an asshole there. Right. Well, let, let me float this to you, though, because to me, this is the most amazing thing about the Rusamar Palhara situation. And that to me is that he's had this process of the last four or five months where he gets uh, banned or barred from the UFC. Dana White calls him despicable. Uh, you know, he's he's had all of this uh, this bad press and he goes over to, to World Series of Fighting. And in my opinion, because of that controversy comes out of this as a more marketable attraction on the independent circuit because frankly he's a dude that i want to watch fight if he's going to fight john fitch in july dude i want to watch that because i want to see what rusmar Baharis is going to do i want to see if he's going to act crazy well first of all i want to see if he's going to get a fucking heel hook in 30 seconds Probably. like he does every time and then i want to see if he's going to let go of it and for the life of me i can't think of another scenario where on the independent circuit anyone would be excited to watch a John Fitch fight. And now <laughs> oh, if, oh. if World Series of Fighting has that, if they put it on this July card with uh, Justin Gaethje against Nick Newell and uh, Tyrone Spong coming back, I think that seems like it could be a huge success for World Series of Fighting yeah. because in a weird way, I feel like more people want to watch Rusmar Palharis now, whereas in the past, he was just sort of like a bit part guy in the UFC. That's that's a completely valid point that I cannot disagree with. I mean, we don't want to send the message to all the young fighters out there that I'm sure listen to the CME podcast. That no, it's not. This isn't a how-to. That right? the way to get yourself noticed is to refuse to release submissions uh, until you become a controversial character. But you're right. I mean, it does add another layer. Like you do want to see Rusmal Palhara's fight because you just want to see what the hell's going to happen and uh, whether he's going to be able to get his mind straight in time to let go of somebody's limb. Uh, so I mean. 
that is something that uh, I guess you can work with to a certain extent, but it also comes with the the downside of it, which is that if it looks like he's held on even a fraction of a second too long, people are going to jump all over his shit for it. Next question comes to us from George Bullis. He writes, I know bad tattoos have been in MMA for a long time. There's classics such as Alan Belcher's molestation of Johnny Cash's face or Josh Sneer's tramp stamp, but I'm deeply concerned about what I witnessed at the weigh-in for the last event in Nepal. Tiago Santos has the Ultimate Fighter 2 Brazil Edition logo tattooed on his bicep. How can we prevent the next generation from making the same mistake? We do not just listen to the CME podcast for entertainment. We listen for MMA guidance. Tell us what, if anything, we should do about the future of MMA Inc. Now, this guy sent this picture to us both on Twitter today. I, I saw don't know the if picture. You saw it. Yeah. It is a pretty amazing <laughs> tattoo. <laughs> you know, I guess it shouldn't surprise us that maybe the, the same kind of people who think that or like who are not thinking far enough into the future to decide that trying to become a professional MMA fighter is a bad idea for almost everybody. Uh, they also might not be the best at deciding what they would like to have on their body for the rest of their lives. Maybe that those kind of things go together. Maybe bad ink is just something we have to live with in MMA because, and if you were the kind of person who plans stuff out or, or thinks too far into the future about all the possible things that could happen, you probably wouldn't become a pro fighter. Wait, so you're saying it's almost like some of these people can't conceive of the future. Almost. Almost, almost like that, that way. Yeah. I think we're going to have to wait till a situation where not having tattoos comes back around, right? Because for a while, having tattoos was this way to sort of brand yourself as a rebel and an outsider yeah. and like a uh, somebody who went against the grain. And now it's sort of gotten to the point where since everybody in the, and their mother's uncle has a tattoo... Now, the new having tattoos is not having tattoos. It's real sneeches kind of situation. I know that you and I are just sitting around waiting for that to be cool again. Yeah, we don't have a single tattoo between right. the two of us. The CME is tattoo-free, as far as we know. <laughs> as, as far as anybody knows, yeah. Uh, it reminds me, though, of a line from a uh, Kevin Canty short story, one of our professors in grad school who's an excellent fiction writer, uh, and it was talking about uh, some kid who was like a heroin addict and had like some crazy tattoo running all the way up his arm, and one of the characters was noting that that is not something you do to your body if you're planning on living to old age. Uh, same could be said for maybe an ultimate fighter. Yeah, uh, there could be some truth in that, I suppose. Okay, next question. Uh, this one uh, on a little personal note from Claire Hammond. When was the last time you two were at an MMA event together? Seems like it might be about time for a co-main event podcast field trip. When was the last time? We were Boy, at it's MMA? been a long time since I haven't been on the road for, for quite a while. Uh, and don't figure to be on the road again for a while since I, the, the company I work for doesn't really have a, have a travel budget for me at this point. I don't know when the last time we were together was. We were both at the first Shogun Hendo fight. Right. And that was in, uh, California. Um, I know that the last one that I went to was Travis Brown, Bigfoot Silva, uh, kind of an inauspicious ending for my traveling career, uh, <laughs> up there in, in uh, Minneapolis, but you weren't at that one. No, no, um, I was not. And you know what? I'm going to say at this point, I'm totally cool with it. Uh, not to let the cat out of the bag, but I would rather be at home than spending four or five days in a hotel room going to open workouts and, uh, and, and pre-fight 
uh, press conferences and stuff like that. You know what? I was, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I suppose, like we're kind of looking, you know, at our travel budget and just, is it worth it to send me as like, you know, the extra guy to, to do fight night stuff. And I argue, no, that it is not worth it, that that money is better spent sending me places like to Greg Jackson's gym or something where, you know, you can kind of get different sort of stuff. And especially now, uh, you don't need to be at an event to see all the fights and all the interviews backstage are going to be on video. Like you're not really missing anything by not being there. And as you said, like, it's just a more like comfortable working environment to be at home, you know, sitting on your couch where you can pause the TV and write something when you need to, uh, and go back and look at the DVR right afterwards. And you're not just exhausted from being on the road. Plus, uh, when you have a, a young baby at home, it's kind of a, a screw job to your wife to take off for three, right. four days and, and leave her with that all alone. Plus you get to sleep in your own bed. It's not like when you're on the road, when you go on the road to cover a UFC event, uh, you watch the show. Then you hang around and you wait for about 45 minutes for the press conference right. to start. Then you do Which the if press it's on the conference. East Coast is going to be really late already. Right, yeah. Then you, you do the press conference, which goes on for another 45 minutes because everybody's got to get up and ask when's the next time the UFC is coming to Dallas, right? Dana, when you come to my house. And then uh, you get done with that. Then you go write your story. Then you go to sleep. It's like, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning. You sleep. If you got to fly to Montana, you got to get up at five o'clock in the morning right. to catch an early fight, flight. You, you sleep for two or three hours. You get, you, you take your plane home. You get home in the afternoon. You have like three, four hours at home, four or five hours. Then you go to sleep again. Oh yeah. And when you wake up, it's Monday. Yeah. So <laughs> you start all over again. Yeah. No, that can be kind of miserable. Uh, and, uh, yeah, like you said, it just doesn't seem entirely necessary. It, it makes you wonder at times if like the good, the, the best benefit to being at like the UFC fights is to be seen there, like to be seen there by other media members and stuff. So people know that you're still in the game and still doing the damn thing. Uh, it doesn't seem like you absolutely have to be there. And I also feel like when the times when I had to sit cage side and do like live play by play or something, which thankfully I don't have to do anymore. Uh, at the end of the fights, I would feel like I had no idea what the hell happened. Right. That happens to me whenever I have to do a live blog. Uh, this question comes to us from Hermie Thistleweight. He writes, what? Come on. Obviously not a real name. What do you two elk fuckers? Oh, well, now I see why he used a pseudonym. <laughs> he doesn't want to know, wants to know who he is. What do you two elk fuckers think would be the ideal way to handle Anderson Silva's return? Assuming for argument's sake that his return is in, say, January 2015, who would be the ideal opponent? Now, see, I am pissed about this because in my bold predictions for 2014 for, for Bleacher Report, I wrote that the, the main event of the end of the year show for the UFC was going to be Anderson Silva against George St. Pierre at 185. Um, I was I felt really good about that for a long time, and now George St. Pierre comes up with this second blown ACL uh, on his opposite leg from the first leg that he blew the ACL on. Right. So clearly he won't be back. And in Anderson time Silva says that he to won't do be that. Back this and year. Anderson Silva says he's it's he's not on the uh, whirlwind rocket to the top comeback that we've been led to believe that he is by all of those finding Bigfoot videos of him all over the internet. I don't know. I'm going to need to see a video of him on an elliptical. Before, before I decide he's ready to come back. So my prediction for the return of Anderson Silva, pretty much blown out of the water at this point. We know that's not going to happen. Uh, so I'm, not, I'm, I'm just going to go outside the box one more time here. What do you think about this, Ben Folks? Anderson Silva comes back January 2015 at light heavyweight. Oh, and uh, is that one for the the rematch with James Irvin? Yes, the, that the, we've the all Silver Irvin too that we've all been hungry for. Yeah. Speaking of bad tattoos. I like it. I like it a lot. Um 
the the next question and this wait one, whoa, whoa you didn't even say anything you got no answer for that i thought i'll let you have, i'll let you have are you just one. gonna shrug about yeah. that one wow uh i gotta read this one because uh i it makes me mad kind of uh but we got to do it. It's from Brian Wilson. I can't tell if that's a typo. If he it's probably Brian, if Wilson, he meant yeah. Brian Wilson, former but closer for the Giants. The the fact that we can't tell. Uh, let's just say that the the, the typo question is going to be raised again before the, I finish reading this. Well, full disclosure, that that typo is probably on me, okay. not Brian well, Wilson. Just wait. Who you got? That's the letter U, not spelled out. Um, on Marion Moracy. The WSOF guy, and it doesn't say the, it's T-G-E. I assume he means the. Uh, or however you say his name versus Barrow. Just say my fucking name on air to impress my GF, damn it. Can't keep emailing you awesome questions. Do not quit answers. Hmm. Are you happy now, Brian Wilson? Maybe this is why your questions don't get read, is because they're, they're borderline... Uh, incoherent. Hey, you don't know that. You don't read any of the questions. I'm reading this one right now. Well, they, so you have one piece of of mail to judge his entire body of work on. That's right. Well, judging from the, unless the others are just incredibly eloquent, which would seem odd given the syntax and spelling uh, available to us in this example. Maybe this tells us why, Brian Wilson, your questions haven't got on air. Regardless. We said your name, if in fact that is your name. So now your girlfriend, I'm sure, who has made it like 45 minutes deep into this MMA podcast is super impressed. Wow. I don't know, man. Just pretty much cut a promo on Brian Wilson. That's, he just He's begging for it, Chad. It seems mean to me, man. Begging for it. All right, next question from Matt Pack. Does the level of excitement slash attention generated by Nicholas Diaz just showing up and shouting at Johnny Hendricks at the UFC 171 weigh-ins say more about Diaz, about the current landscape about of the UFC, or about the way fans follow the sport? Now, I will admit that when we saw Nicholas Diaz show up, uh, camera crew in tow, and from one from one angle you can even tell with a boom mic operator... Uh, shows up at the Johnny Hendricks re-weigh-in to shout stuff at him. This was the moment when I started to feel like, ah, okay, you know, maybe I've heard enough from the brothers Diaz until we actually have a fight on the regs. What? They're trying to put these ass women down to their maximum effect. That's the thing, though. They're not. <laughs> they're not putting the ass women's down to their maximum effect. In fact, there haven't been no ass whippings for a while. <laughs> So until an ass whipping is at least on paper, I'm kind of done with them for the moment. And and I love the antics. I do. I find both of the Diaz brothers fascinating, uh, like a car crash that you can't look away from. You know, whenever they start talking, I'm just kind of glued to it. But uh, at this t at this juncture, I'm going to take the Tommy Toehold uh, impression of Nate Diaz. And that's pretty much going to be my thing until we actually get a Diaz brother scheduled for an ass weapon well, to the I, maximum effect I, in the cage. I feel like this question asks us to, to choose between some things that could all be the case, that it could be, be we are fascinated with Nick Diaz, both because he is fascinating and because we are weirdos. 
Uh, and also because we're not that into Johnny Hendricks yet, even though we recognize that he is awesome to watch once you actually get him in the cage. And he does get in the cage more often and actually put these ass weapons down to their maximum effect. Uh, I think it's a combination of kind of all that stuff. But I do agree that it seems weird how uh, how media savvy Nick Diaz suddenly has gotten uh, and how for a retired fighter, he makes it to an awful lot of damn UFC events. A little weird. Um, next question here. This one comes from Scott Pfeiffer. I recently read an article by MMA Junkie slash USA Today columnist Ben Folks. That ne- would be me. Never heard of him. The article was about MMA fighter sponsorship dollars dwindling. The article painted a fairly bleak outlook for the fighter in general. Is there a revenue sharing plan available similar to Major League Baseball where small market teams benefit from large market? It seems the UFC's demands make it almost impossible for the average fighter to make anything. By average, I mean those not named John Jones or George St. Pierre. Well, yeah, we got the uh, the UFC fighter uniform, uh, the allegedly the original or like first gen mock up was was, quote unquote, leaked on the Internet this past week. Take that for what it's worth was uh, uh, Chris Weidman with an LG logo on his chest and some bad, really badly photoshopped bad boy shorts. That, that he had previously been wearing like and somebody pointing this out on Twitter the kind of ouch for bad boy to be used as the before <laughs> and a before and after uh, uh, comparison but but yeah allegedly we have the UFC uniform which we almost assume at this point was what Dana White meant uh, months ago now when he said uh, that they were going to quote fix the sponsorship issue because that's what we do we fix shit well but that was before it's not our fucking problem. Right, like, but we fix shit. Yeah. That was the first thing we heard. Except for when it's not our fucking problem, which we will decide later. Uh, you know, as far as is the sponsorship outlook that bleak uh, for fighters, honestly, talking to uh, a lot of people on all various sides of that issue, for the most part, yeah, it does seem like it's gotten a lot bleaker. The thing that's hard to tell, though, is exactly why. Some people say, you know, the UFC sponsor tax... Um, that has driven a lot of people out of it because they just figure, all right, I, I can't afford to pay this exorbitant fee just for the opportunity to then pay a fighter a fee. Uh, and so it has really dwindled down the available sponsors who are then able to, uh, you know, they know that there's not that much negotiating space for the fighters out there. And that's why you keep seeing the same sponsors over and over again. Then you get guys like the dynamic fastener guy who doesn't get charged the, the sponsor tax. Uh, and it's just kind of doing it for fun. I mean, I think a lot of sponsors are realizing that Putting a logo on a dude's shorts uh, for a UFC event is not worth the advertising or the marketing uh, cost that people maybe thought it was a few years ago. And that instead of thinking that, hey, it's just completely uh, like the market just sucks now that it was, you know, there was a bubble before. And the, and the bubble has burst, and perhaps rightfully so, that this is just not worth what people were paying for it, even you know three, four years ago. I think that a lot of that is going on. Um, but, I mean, as like the question is, was the UFC owe anybody like the opportunity to make more sponsor money? Because it seems like they've gone back and forth on that. Like before, where it was like, well, hey, maybe these guys don't make all that much in upfront money, but they can make sponsor money. And hey, the NBA won't let you just go and put whatever logos you want on your own shorts and go out there and play. Everybody has to, to wear the uniform. Uh, it seems like kind of another one of those situations, doesn't it, where the UFC wants – these comparisons to other mainstream sports when it suits them, but not when it doesn't. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, it's, it's probably not a situation where they quote unquote, owe anybody money that, that, you know, for sponsorships and stuff like that. But uh, in the real world where, 
sponsorship dollars and, and the opportunity to have sponsorships has existed since the beginning, uh, in mixed martial arts. It's kind of a jerk move to take that away. So like, not that they necessarily owe anyone, but if you're going to go full bore with this whole UFC uniform thing, which I just think seems like a weird idea anyway, it's going to make all the fights look like, uh, uh, like ultimate fighter fights. If everybody's in there wearing the same shorts, is that what we're talking about here? Cause that's, that's kind of what the impression I got this past week. That, I just think that'd be weird. Well, and I feel like, uh, in fighting, you got to allow them a little individual flair, right? Right. Yeah. I, I agree. So I, I do we I, all have to use the same, like a uh, UFC sanctioned walkout music now too? Yeah. It's going to be nothing but STEM all the time. <laughs> I right, do next, not want to face any more pain. Next question comes to us from Nick Raymond. He writes, can we talk about adding new weight classes to the UFC? I know talking about adding more weight classes makes some people, parenthetically Ben, want to jump out a window, but we've gone from five to 10 in a short four years and the world is still turning. Adding two new weight classes between light heavyweight and lightweight, uh, wouldn't would be very easy move the welterweight limit to 175 at a 165 pound division at a okay blah 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 yeah uh i know you hate this idea so why don't you go crap on it i know like i know you're going to no more weight classes I'm not totally against the idea of any more weight classes. No. What I don't want to see is a situation like where in boxing where you get so many weight classes that you don't even know who's champion of what. What the fuck is junior featherweight? Right, exactly. You get to like just uh, super middleweight or whatever, and then nobody knows anything. Uh, But I wouldn't be totally against the idea of 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 a cruiserweight limit 225 something like that uh which would give quentin rampage jackson the 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 division to be champion of uh i I wouldn't i don't i don't know that it's 100 percent necessary but i also wouldn't uh run screaming from it if it happened okay um next question uh from dennis yonison jonison it's Mm, not not easy is it (laughs) If you guys lived in Europa, would you go up at 3 to 4 a.m. in the morning to watch the standard UFC fight night show from America? I'm going to say no, we would not. No, probably not. I'd probably exercise the uh, VCR. They got those over there, right? VCR? <laughs> Video compact cassette recorder? There you go. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that's I'm, I'm always amazed that those guys do that. But then again, uh, I mean, especially for the, you know, for a standard like fight night kind of thing. Yeah. You'd be like, I'll DVR it. And especially if I can watch it whenever I roll out of bed, it's not like I'm in danger of hearing spoilers from like my bed to the couch. Um, you can, you know, you know what to avoid so that you could, it'd still be new to you. And then you could skip through the commercials and stuff. Like, I think that would be awesome. However, I also think it is kind of awesome, uh, that at least, as recently as the the John Jones Rashad Evans uh, pay per view, because it's on at like 5 a.m. Uh, in Europe, when I was uh, on vacation in Germany during that fight, got to wake up, watch it on UFC.com, didn't have to pay for a pay per view or anything. So if that's the trade off, uh, I don't know. Some instances, maybe that's worth it. All right. Well, we got time for one more. Uh, I got one about uh, UFC 173 main event. What, what do you got? I got one asking us what your full name is and what the J uh, in, in the middle of my name stands for. My full name is Chad Vincent Dundas. What's the J stand for? The J doesn't stand for anything. Oh, that's right. Because you're from the backwards south. Kind of, yeah. Uh, from Eggs. Oh, wait, no. From Jay Glover. 
with the announcement of Baral versus Dillashaw becoming the new main event of UFC 173, I can't help but wonder what the fuck the UFC was thinking. Not only will Dillashaw most likely get his blood sucked by the vampire that is Henan Baral. I thought he was a monster, but don't confuse the issue. Uh, but I also don't think that these two have big enough drawing power to headline a pay-per-view. Please discuss. Well, at that point, we're basically saying that Henan Baral doesn't have big enough drawing power to, to headline a pay-per-view against anybody, right? That's that's it seems what what people are saying. Yeah, he was supposed to fight Rafael Asuncao, right? And like he was hurt, so they kind of did this Dillashaw thing. Because uh, I mean, uh, if if the point is like the, what were they thinking? Why they put these two guys together? I'm not sure that Rafael Asuncao comes out with much more drawing power than T.J. Dillashaw, right? Yeah, I think that right now the UFC is in a tough spot with Henry uh, Brow and with the entire bantamweight division. I think though that that's one where uh, you got to give it some time. It's gonna take a while because you look at the featherweight division, which you could have made that same argument about uh fairly recently and now it's finally getting to the to be a pretty good compelling field i think the same thing is going to happen with bantamweight it might just take a little more time and maybe it'll take uh, a different champion for people to really latch on to i mean if dominant cruz can ever uh get his stuff together and, and come back i think uh Hennon brown and dominant cruz would be a pretty big fight uh you know assuming that could ever possibly happen but yeah right now uh the the ufc is just going to have to maybe take its lumps with the bantamweight division. I don't see any way around it. And what is more, like, I don't think TJ Dillashaw is going to win that fight, but I also think it's kind of a fun little scrap. Going to be going to be interesting to watch. I think like uh, Burrow probably uh, uh, runs away with it, wears him around like a hat. But, you know, TJ Dillashaw is going to going to bring it. He's he's an exciting guy. You just want to see uh, Burrow's overly sexualized dance. You, you know Which me too, too well. Too erotic too for well. you. Just want to see all of the over-sexualized dancing I can. Anyway, I guess that's probably going to wrap it up for this week. Another All Questions Considered episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. We think we'll be back to our normal format next week. Is there anything going on that, that next week? In we'll, terms of the fighting? We'll figure something out. professional fighting that we do our podcast about? <laughs> we'll figure something out. Right. Don't worry uh, about uh, it. Apologies has, if we didn't get to your, your question. Uh, there were a lot of them. There were an awful lot of them. So maybe if we have to come back and do this again next week, it wouldn't be a total loss. I don't know. Uh, as for right now, though, we're done. We are through. We are out. So just a J. No no middle name at all. That's right. Just an initial. Do we know why? How that occurred? Like what? You don't You don't have time for that story right now. But you, uh, it has something to do with your dad, right? Like, it, yes. Now, are you fully a junior? <laughs>